Welcome to Beyond the Bullet Points, a podcast from Stoddard's Ranging Guns, where Ken Bay explores the personalities, histories, and drive behind Stoddard's brands and the organizations it supports. Tom Taylor is the Chief Marketing Officer and Executive Vice President of Commercial Sales at Sig Sauer. His exposure to consumer brands started when he was in college. He drove a root truck for Coca-Cola, where he moved up the ranks and honed his product marketing and sales skills. Tell me a little bit about your background. I know you 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 did things other than, uh, than work for firearm companies in the past. Uh, where, where did you start? Yeah, um, I joined the firearm industry just about 15 years ago, but uh, I had a total uh, life before that uh, in business, and that was uh, mostly at the Coca-Cola company. Um, while I was still in college, I thought it'd be a good idea to get a part-time job driving a route truck, uh, which was really good money for a college kid, and uh, that grew into a 21-year career uh, across um, uh, sales, uh, customer management, marketing, branding, um, did a little bit of everything at the Coca-Cola company, got to deal with some of the largest customers in the world, including Walmart and a number of, of uh, uh, retail chains. And it was, a, it was a tremendous experience and a tremendous career uh, for, for 21 years. And um, to be honest with you, I left the organization because I got tired of being an army brat. Uh, the company was very dynamic. And I, I think I moved seven times in my last 14 years with the company and uh, got tired of it. And, and when I left by my choice, I, uh, uh, had an opportunity to join uh, the firearms industry and uh, have absolutely never looked back 15 years later. It was, it was a tremendous run at Coke, but this has been absolutely outstanding being able to be part of this great industry. When Tom joined the firearms industry 15 years ago, he joined Smith & Wesson, where he spent five years. He had a short stint with the Freedom Group that owned Remington, among other brands, and then five years with Mossberg before landing at SIG. How is it different working for SIG after Mossberg and Smith? You know, um, SIG is just, um, it's it's a pace that, quite frankly, I haven't seen since the Coca-Cola company. Um, it's just a very, very different environment. Not better or, or worse. Uh, it's just different. Um, our CEO, Ron Cohen, and Ken, I know you've met him. Uh, he is a driven individual. Um, his He's been there since 2004 at SIG and is as enthusiastic, if not more enthusiastic now, I think, than he was when he joined the company. Because it certainly was similar to my story at Smith & Wesson, maybe worse. Uh, SIG was a struggling company when he arrived back in 2004. And, uh, you know, he just runs at a pace and he expects everyone around him to run at a pace. And, you know, maybe we'll talk about it a little bit as we go forward. But the, the pace that the company has introduced new products, entered new markets. Uh, launch new programs. Um, it's just never a dull moment. And so um, at Mossberg, we were doing similar things. We were definitely doing a lot of things. Same thing at Smith & Wesson. I mean, at, at Smith, we launched the M&P pistol, the M&P rifle, the 500 and the 460. You know, uh, just it was just sort of a, a good rhythm of new product. And same thing at Mossberg. Um, but if you look at SIG in the last really less than five years, there's probably been seven or 
eight introductions, I guess eight uh, introductions that would span multiple years at most companies just in terms of having the engineering resources to do it, the 320, the MCX, the MPX, the 365, optics, ammo suppressors, air guns. Um, you know, if you look across what SIG has done, it's just, uh, let's just put it this way. When I show up in the office, or and my day goes by very fast. SIG has a long history. It traces its history back to the 1700s. It's an unknown story, I think, because in America, um, the brand really has only been known since the 80s, the mid to late 80s, as Stig Arms, and it was an import company, uh, basically bringing in 226s and uh, you know some of the older Sig products, 239s and things like that. But um, it was an import company and uh, really wasn't well known in the U.S. I like to share it, and and uh, as you mentioned. Swiss Industrial Group, or SIG, um, as it's now known, was a wagon wheel company in the mid-1800s, 1851. And then only seven years later, um, after they began building wagon wheels as a, you know industrial um, company, uh, they saw the Swiss Army contract for rifles and bid on it, and lo and behold, won and became a rifle company. And that was uh, uh, late 1850s. And uh, that's the SIG side. But even more interesting... Uh, the J.P. Sauer, uh, the Sauer side of the business, is even older. It's the second oldest firearms company that's still operating in the world. Everyone knows sort of the oldest. That's uh, Beretta, uh, 500 years, one passion and all that. So they've been around for a very, very long time, and no one debates that. But J.P. Sauer & Sons was actually founded in, in 1751. So the real roots of the company go all the way back to the mid-1700s. And uh, the two companies came together in about 1975 uh, to joint venture a handgun project, and that's what formed Sig Sauer. Times have not always been rosy for Sig Sauer, despite its long history. In the early 2000s, the company was struggling. The new ownership bought the company in about 2000. And, or 2000. That's our current ownership. Uh, L&O um, uh, Management bought the company in 2000, and... For about four years, the company continued to struggle. I think they went through a CEO a year uh, in those first four years trying to figure out ways to be successful. The issue was they were importing guns, and at the cost, it was just impossible to be successful. And so Big Arms, as it was known, was selling imported shotguns and upland hunting clothes and, you know, oh, by the way, some guns from Germany um, trying to be successful. And when Ron shows up, as he tells the story, it was about a $50 million company losing $10 million a year with about 80 employees. And so his first act was to just look at the company and say, okay, we got to stop trying to be like this um, just sort of uh, entrepreneurial company doing odd things. And he unfortunately had to lay off about 20 people just to survive. So the company actually went south to about 60 employees. And then he, he often talks about the uh, the speech just around Thanksgiving time where he, he said, look, there's only 60 of us here now, but uh, the only commitment I can make to you is that uh, nobody here is going to work harder than I do to make this company successful. And, and so it really has been, you know, obviously a few ups and downs along the way, but um, the company began to build parts uh, to try to bring the cost down to the guns that were being imported. Um Company also started started entered the long gun market, as you know, uh, a few short years later, um, and that also helped change the tra- trajectory of the company. But uh, yeah, it's really been sort of a, a steady incline. And when I started talking to Ron in 2010, he already had designs on not diversifying the company by acquisition, which most companies do, 
and also not by entering non-gun affiliated categories, but he wanted to really do things that were supportive of the gun. The gun was always going to be the centerpiece of the company, but he had these ideas about electro-optics or, or, or uh, sort of electro-products. At the time, he didn't know exactly what that looked like, um, but he was originally talking to me about coming in as a VP of business development to say, hey, what, what, what way can the company go to be successful? And then about 2014, the company began to launch new products. Uh, ammunition was derived because the company got tired of paying so much money to buy ammo for testing for all the military contracts it was pursuing. Um, and started realizing they were having to make these difficult projects, working with optics companies, working with ammo companies, working with suppressor companies to go bid uh, for military contracts. And that's really what drove uh, the company to diversify the way that it did. And so... Uh, now the company, um, you know, depending on what data you look like, it's, I'll just say a very generic, uh, say this a very generic way that no one can argue with. We're certainly a top two or three or four farms company in the world, uh, today and, uh, probably closer to the top of that list than the bottom. While SIG still has facilities in Germany and Switzerland, most of its firearms are now manufactured in the U.S. While the difficulties in moving firearms out of Germany is part of the reasoning for that, cost also plays a role. Really, the only guns still being produced in Europe are uh, a handful of guns in Germany to supply that market because guns are so difficult to move in and out of Germany. So we've maintained a small operation over there of less than 100 employees. But um, by and large, the company is an American company. It's German ownership, but the guns that are on shelves across America today are all made in New Hampshire, whether it's a P210, a 226, a 320, a 365, a MCX, MPX, those are all made you know, in America, in New Hampshire, uh, you know, in, in the facilities spread across the, uh, uh, the southern part of the state. We actually, unfortunately, have had to diversify into five locations, four manufacturing locations, the SIG Academy in New Hampshire, uh, the ammo facilities in Arkansas and optics is in, uh, Portland. So, um, yeah, it's the German portion of the company and the Swiss portion of Sig Sauer itself uh, are, are very small and report under Ron Cohen. You know, if you think about what, as an example, the latest new product, the last new product I'll say that we uh, build in the U.S. Um, is the P210. You know, everybody knows the famous P210. It's been around since 1949 and maybe arguably the finest handgun ever made. And um, to buy one, you were probably looking at around $3,000 of a gun that was imported from Switzerland. Um, same thing with 226s and 229s from Germany. You know, you're looking at um, well over $1,000 to be in those guns and probably maybe closer to $2,000. And uh, today those are all made in America. And so the import issues were one thing, but the cost was, was really the other. It was just so brutally expensive. The company was having trouble succeeding. Uh, with the cost of those guns and the import issues. So last year, the Army chose your P320 as, a, as its new service pistol. Uh, congratulations. That's a, that's a pretty big deal because my understanding is they haven't made a change since 1985 uh, when they, they chose Beretta um, and their M9. Um, it's unique in many ways. Tell us about how it's unique and, and what it was like to be chosen by the Army. Yeah, it's, uh, I mean, it's, it's historic. I mean, it's, it's only happening. It's not, it hasn't happened since 1985. And maybe the more historic piece is it didn't change before that since about 1915. Uh, it's the third 
official gun, even though there have been other guns in service, it's the third official gun really in, in about 100 years. And so, you know, I think it's a historic moment. Um, as you know, it's been rumored for probably since I've been in the industry 15 years that the Army is going to select a new gun at some point. So we we're, we feel very honored and proud to be part of a historic moment. The Army's new handgun, the P320, is unique in that the actual gun is what's known as the trigger assembly. Where the gun portion of most handguns is defined as the receiver, the bulk of the handgun, which includes the grip and the trigger assembly, SIG defined the P320 pistol so that the legal gun is just a singular modular system that contains the trigger and striker system. You drop that into the frame of your choice and then add the barrel and slide. You can add that same legal gun to different frames. The reason the gun, I think, was selected is since really the last, the latest iteration of the project is called the Modular Handgun System, MHS. And, uh, you know, while the other guns may have interchangeable back straps or things like that, they're not modular handguns. And I think that's what uh, ultimately kind of uh, helped us uh, move to the front of the pack. I'll say that I think when the competition started, I don't think we were the favorite. Um, I think the the attributes of the gun helped us. And I think at the end of the day, the performance of the gun helped us. Um, you know, there's a big financial piece of it that gets involved, uh, you know, and, and we certainly had to understand that. But uh, at the end of the day, a gun that wasn't able to meet the Army's criteria was not going to be selected. And so when you go look at all the, the deep reports on all the testing, uh, you know, we, we clearly won the testing. Uh, we clearly checked the box in terms of modularity, 15, and then, you know, folks love to accessorize, and with the 320, it's 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 a very, very easy process to uh, to alter your gun uh, a lot of different ways, and I think the Army likes that. There's the M17 everyone talks about, but then there's also the M18, uh, you know, which is the, the compact size. Uh, the Air Force will be using that as their standard gun, but then there's also units in the Army and other special forces around the military that will be using the smaller gun. Uh, for that purpose. Um, but if you've got a six foot five inch, uh, guy with gorilla hands, you may need a large grip. And if you've got a, uh, five foot five inch female, inch female soldier who has small hands or even a male who likes small grip, um, you know, you've got that flexibility to change the grip circumference, the, the intended mission or purpose of the gun can be adjusted. So, um, I think that's ultimately what gave the 320, uh, the leg up to ultimately be uh, awarded the name M17 and, and given the U.S. military contract. And right now it's, it's just, it's fun to see in our factory. We have a dedicated area that's secured to build those guns. Uh, the U.S. Army has a couple of people that are, are, have become our new best friends in the factory to make sure everything is moving accordingly and, uh, and all their standards are met. And, uh, it's, it's just cool to see those guns. Uh, we, we recently had Joe Montagna from, uh, Criminal Minds who also has a really cool gun show called Gun Stories. And he was up doing some filming at SIG, and he was in our factory and doing some social media posts. And it was funny. He was there a day we were shipping uh, thousands of guns out to the U.S. Army, and he made a great comment. He goes, that's really cool to see a box of freedom being shipped out the door. You know, that really is cool cool to see something like that. You know that those guns are going uh, into combat. And, you know, last story before we move on is, you know, we saw them being tested at Fort Campbell with the 101st. They was also being tested by some special forces units that were going to be first to deploy with it once it passed its uh, field testing. And just a Christmas in about, in, I guess it was in July, we got a little bit of a Christmas present. The 3rd Cavalry uh, unit deployed 
they were really the first ones in harm's way with an M17. And kind of gives me goosebumps to talk about it. But just lo and behold, I guess there was a photographer traveling with them for some reason. And they sent us some professional images of the gun uh, in a country that had to be kept confidential. But um, the terrain, the guns, uh, they took some sunset pictures where they're standing on top of a rocky point with their M17s out of their holsters with one guy against the sunset and then the whole unit across a rocky mountaintop with their M17s turned sideways. And they said, hey, Sig, thank you for uh, arming us with this new weapon. Uh, we're proud to be the first uh, in in, uh, in harm's way with your products. And they sent us those pictures. So, yeah, it's it's been a great, a great process. So it very unique. Uh, I know you, you described how modular firearm works, not, not just for different uh, people of different statures, sizes, but if you wanted something that was compact one day and full size the next, um, it's just slipping that trigger assembly out of, of one frame and into another. Yeah, it's, it's uh, you know, we, we haven't gone there yet with our advertising, but even one idea that we had was, was showing the, the, the actual uh, carriage that the trigger group sits in, um, and that is the serialized component of the gun. So you can literally turn the takedown lever, pull the, the takedown lever out, pull, pull the gun up the slide off, and you can basically reach in, pop that out, and hold that trigger group in your hand. And then the, the plethora of grips, slides, barrels, and you know other accessories that you can lay on the table to rebuild your gun, it, it really is like a Lego set. Um, you know, when you look at what can be put with that trigger group to make it a different size, a different caliber, you know, all a race gun uh, versus a, a combat gun or a self-defense gun. It's uh, it's pretty amazing that it, it, it's not just sort of lip service that it's a modular gun. It truly is a uh, a Lego set for uh, for gun for gun owners. And and you didn't stop with the the P320, right? The MPX, the your AR style uh, pistol, and the MCX, your AR style rifle, also have this concept of of being modular. Yeah, I think it's it's just part of the world today. People love the flexibility of being able to to go from a 16 inch barrel, you know, all the way down to a, a an SBR or even a pistol, and to be able to use the same components to do that uh, makes it very flexible. I asked Tom if there's a corporate philosophy that governs what Sig decides to produce. That even though our commercial business still sort of keeps the machines running and, and lights on at times. Uh, we are a defense company first. I mean, I think that's kind of where you're going is what, what makes up big. And Ron Cohen would tell you, if you ask him, we are a defense company. Um, we build quality products. Uh, we are always thinking. Uh, sometimes we upset our consumers because you'll have the Gen 1 MPX, the Gen 2 MPX, the Gen, you know, this generational thing with our products. And it upsets consumers because sometimes it obsoletes old parts and, and that sort of thing. But what Ron or anybody else that understands our company's philosophy would tell you is we won't apologize for that because if we go and we do a, a military bid and we learn something, we learn something that makes the gun better. It makes it better for the commercial market. It makes it better for the next military contract. We are going to make that change. And if it affects the generational guns behind it, we don't like it. We don't like that it um, creates a little bit of an issue with parts that may be in the, the market. But SIG is, a, is the essence of a continuous improvement company, and it's impossible to compete for these military contracts without getting learning. You know, you, you, you lose one here and there, and you lose it because of XYZ factor. So next time you go to bed, you say, well, I'm not going to let XYZ factor 
affect me again. And so that's really what drove the MCX Virtus. You know, that, that, the MCX, uh, Gen 1s and Gen 2s, um, we lost a rifle contract in a major country, uh, overseas. And, um, a couple factors that we lost on, we improved. And that drove the commercial MCX Virtus rifle. And, um, I'm happy to say the results since we rebranded it and improved it, um, been very, very good. We're unfortunately backlogged significantly on the MCX rifle now, um, which I don't like. It also says that we did the right thing in terms of the improvements we made to the gun. And also we've tried to do a little more marketing. The company was a great product company. And we've, we've tried to market what we do um, a little better. Um, so Ron's moniker is if we're a defense company first, um, it will have tremendous fallout, um, you know, positive fallout in the commercial market so that when you're buying a SIG, you know, you're buying a product that's built with the quality, um, you know, that, that would be sufficient for a military unit. And he likes to tell the story when a 226 is going down the assembly line, that assembly worker does not know whether that gun's being built for the commercial market or cell team six. And now the testing at the end of it may be different for an MK25, uh, 226 pistol. Um, but the assembly worker and the components going into that gun, they don't know whether it's going to be in harm's way in the most dangerous places in the world or whether it's going to go on someone's nightstand to protect their home. And it shouldn't, it shouldn't be a difference. So that's really the guiding principle behind what SIG is. It's, uh, if you ever get, if consumers ever get the chance to meet Ron Cohen, he is a, a private guy, uh, although he loves to talk about the company. We're trying to change that. We're trying to put him out a little more so people can understand more about SIG. Um, but if you talk to him, you kind of understand the drive behind, um, uh, it's never good enough. I want it to always be better. So you, you mentioned the the P365, and um, it, it's an example of, of a gun that you can't make fast enough. Um, customers are often frustrated when a manufacturer releases a new firearm and there aren't enough produced to satisfy the demand. I know there we have many customers asking for that firearm. Um, many have asked, why do manufacturers do that, and is there anything that can be done to, to mitigate that frustration? Well, I think there's there's a couple of things. Number one thing that happens is the worst sin the industry does is they they get excited, they launch a gun, and they're not ready. Um, you know, you, you do the big launch, and consumers come in and say, "Hey, I saw this ad, and I read this post or whatever," and they say, "Well, they're not shipping it yet." So that's probably the worst sin that, that the company's guilty of. Uh, that happens you know, way too frequently. Um, you know, the next thing that kind of happens is you launch it, and then it just takes it's startup. Um, either, you know, you, it takes a little bit of time to get, um, caught up, um, to production at startup as the, as the factory ramps up for production. Um, part of that is, as an example, we, we upset a lot of customers two years ago with the 226 and 229 Legion. So with that product, we forecasted our product manager doing all the market research in the world, talking to customers. Our estimate was that we would sell five to 7,000 guns in a year. Well, in 18 months, we sold 90,000 Legion products. So there's just no way to catch up fast enough to that. We finally did, um, and which is amazing in and of itself that we finally caught up to it. But, I mean, imagine a supply chain team that takes time to build parts and, and do all those things, planning for a monthly run rate of about 500 to 700 guns a month. And then at the end of the year, you've sold, you know, in the first year, you know, we had sold over 60,000 guns. So, you know, it was it was 10x what we anticipated. So there was no way to really catch up fast enough to that. 
The P- P365 has been um, a little bit of a different challenge because we we were very confident in that gun from the day we learned that it was gonna we were gonna be able to come up with the engineering to put a 10 round or 12 round magazine in it. We kind of said, uh, "Holy crap, Batman! Uh, we think we have a winner on our hands." So we ramped up. Uh, in advance, knowing it was going to be a popular product. I mean, not, hopefully that hasn't come across as uh, a little um, arrogant, but we were confident that it would be a very successful gun um, with that with that new development in the gun industry. I mean, it's significantly more capacity than anything uh, on the market, as you know. Um, so we, we've ramped very quickly in production on that, and we're making big numbers. Um, I won't share exactly the numbers, but it's good. I mean, we did a good job of planning ahead on this one, but it, we we didn't know how high it was up. And right now, I can just tell you the backlog on that product, it's not optimistic for your customers because the backlog is tens of thousands of guns right now, and we're making tens of thousands of guns. So it's just one of those things. That I don't think it matters how much we plan. You know, it's just going to take some time to catch up. It's, it's probably, I mentioned it earlier, it's probably the most highly demanded gun I can recall uh, in my 15 years in the industry. Uh, maybe the Ruger LCP, you know, back in maybe 2000, well, maybe that was eight or nine when that gun came out. It was, you know, a lot of demand. They sold a tremendous tens of thousands of that gun in its first year. And there've been a few others like it, but um, this gun is one of those kinds of guns where I don't, I just don't know that a factory can keep up until, you know, uh, a little bit down the road where the demand subsides maybe slightly, and then our factory can completely catch up uh, to where it is. What I can tell you is that Ron, being who he is, um, has signed a lot of um, agreements uh, in the past several months to uh, invest extremely heavily in the factory, uh, explore new uh, real estate um, here in the U.S. and, and in New Hampshire, uh, to try to find more creative ways to, A, service these military contracts, build more 365s, build more 320s, build more MCXs, and so on, um, so that we can keep up. But So those are, you know, just some of the things I've seen in my experience is uh, lack of planning, uh, announcing too early, or just the fact that it's so popular, there's just no way to keep up. And that's what we're experiencing with the 365 right now. So people are just hopefully be patient with us and uh, understand that, you know, we're not, we didn't miss plan. We just, there's just no way to ramp a product to the numbers. Um, and if I could share the actual numbers with you, it'd be, it'd be staggering how many orders we have for that gun at the moment. To meet demand, SIG is planning to add artificial intelligence in the form of additional robots to its manufacturing process. We still anticipate growing our employee base, but at the same time, we're uh, putting in robotic arms to load those CNC machines because obviously loading 80 slides as opposed to 20 by hand is just going to slow us down. So if you see it now, there will be two CNC machines with four axes each with a robotic arm in the middle. And so now one guy can run those two machines and, and be loading 160 slides, whereas before it pretty much took one guy per one machine or maybe one good guy per two machines. So our, our output in our existing footprint is going to go way up. But at the same time, we just, um, with the, the way that our, uh, the U.S. military contracts, the Thai military and police contract, the DHS contract, uh, all these, these different military wins, the surge contract, uh, we're just trying to see the horizon and understand that three to five years from now, we are going to need more space. Um, and, 
we are going to be entering new categories um, that we're not in today, both in the civilian market and in the uh, dedicated defense market, some products that won't be available on the commercial market. So, you know, with the horizon that we see, we know we need more more real estate, more uh, more space that's uh, convenient to each other and, and not spread out all over uh, New Hampshire and, and ultimately the, the U.S. and the world. I asked Tom what's ahead for SIG, both on the military side and on the consumer side. There are a couple of other massive military powers in the world that are um, starting with the 320 right now. And so those things will still be coming Um you know, some that are a little less known. I mean, I didn't mention it earlier, but the uh, a lot of people know that the squad marksmanship optic uh, for many, many years has been the uh, Trijicon ACOG for power. And it's a staple in the American military landscape. And uh, that contract has been uh, recently awarded to Sig Sauer uh, for a new product. The Tango 6 1-6 optic is now going to be the squad uh, marksmanship optic. And... Um, Pretty big news, and I think you know the rationale is as great as the ACOG is. And I mean, I love to give credit where credit's due. It's a great, great product. I've had them uh, in my safe. Um, don't use them anymore. You know, I use SIG optics now, but I have them. Uh, it's a great, great product. Uh, but you're a little limited if you go into a, a 12 foot, you know, room and then you step out and you need to take a 200 yard shot. A four power scope is a bit limited. Uh, the Tango 6 that they've selected is a 1 to 6 variable. It's got the quick change uh, lever, you know, on the, the amplification. And so you now can go with a wide objective into a small room, and then you step outside, and you can rip it right over to a 6 power. Um, and so they've now selected that. So that's really cool new news uh, for our optics division. What we like to do is just keep one step ahead with innovation. Uh, we have in 19, we have two other major things coming out for the market. Um, and, uh, we just love to keep innovating. We love to keep competing these military contracts and learning as a company and, and, uh, getting better and better. And Ron likes to tell the story, you know, even though we've become a fairly big company, uh, he says someday people are going to stop calling us Sig Sawyer. <laughs> That's great. He wants people to pronounce six, six hour the right way. So uh, uh, we hope we're getting there someday. Anything else we should know about SIG that maybe others don't know, not widely known? Um, I don't know. I mean, I think you've pumped me pretty dry today. It's, uh, <laughs> it, it's fun. It's fun to tell the story because it is not, it's not a well-known brand. I say that all the time. Uh, you know, we, we don't have the heritage of a, a, a Colt, a Winchester, a Smith & Wesson a Remington, um, even a Browning or, you know, in modern culture, a, a Glock is an iconic, those are iconic brands. And even though we've been in service with the SEAL teams for 20 plus years and second oldest, you know, gun company technically in the, in the history, uh, Sig Sauer in America is not a well-known brand. And, and we hope that what we're doing today is building uh, a platform that says that we're going to be a well-known company. And, uh, you know, I think we we try to be open. We don't want to tell people about things too far in advance, but uh, you know, we are trying to be cutting edge and out there um, with a lot of interesting new products. And uh, um, you know, that's kind of where we are today. But we don't stand still very well. You know, it's fun to have a lot to talk about, and we just want to keep uh, we want to keep it out there, keep it going. Thank you very much for taking the time to do this with me today. I really appreciate it. All right, Ken, I appreciate it. Enjoyed uh, enjoyed spending time with you. Thanks again. Take care and good luck. Congratulations on all of these recent 
achievements. Thank you. We appreciate it.